Good morning, CBC family. Um, a couple of uh, housekeeping notes. One, uh, Milt was supposed to preach today to kick us back into our Exodus uh, sermon series, but I got a fun phone call at 2.30 yesterday saying that he had tested positive for COVID. Um, so he's doing good, uh, just some mild symptoms like some of us. So keep uh, Milt in your prayer uh, as well as their family, but uh, he's, he's at home today. Uh, so we will be... Uh, Lord willing, kicking back off in the Exodus series next week with Milt uh, bringing his message. The second news is, uh, many of you guys know that last week I got di uh, diagnosed with COVID as well. Um, and so I'm still in the phase where I have no symptoms, no fevers, no anything like that. But I'm still in the phase where I need to wear an N95 mask. And so for many of you, this is the day you've been praying for and hoping for. It's like, finally, Mike is masked when he's preaching. Uh, it just makes the experience so much better for everybody else if I'm, uh, my face is covered. But we'll get through it, and then we'll continue to uh, look back on these years with kind of this weird fondness of, remember that season when we had to preach and mask and stuff? Um, but if you will, uh, go ahead and turn in your uh, Bibles to Luke chapter 5. It's where we're going to be today. As you are looking at Luke chapter 5, I want to start by sharing a story um, of one of uh, the most interesting encounters I ever had. So when I was in seminary at Dallas Theological Seminary, uh, that's located in Dallas. Um, yeah, yeah, if you take nothing away. Uh, I was living with a very wealthy family who wanted to kind of support me in my ministry uh, by giving me a place to live for free while I was in seminary. And it was in the richest neighborhood in Dallas. Uh, and it was a wonderful thing for me. So when I was there, I was a single guy in seminary. I had a friend from like rural Tennessee, his name is Josh, and Josh was coming to visit the big city and his buddy Mike. Uh, so he gets in town, and uh, as, you know, mid-20s people do, we're just hanging out and realize, hey, let's grab some dinner, and it's like nine o'clock at night. Now, by the way, my stage of life right now, if I look up at the clock and it's nine o'clock at night, something's wrong, because um, I should have been asleep 30 minutes ago. Um, but at that point, uh, we were just like, hey, that's appropriate time to get dinner. Sorry, I'm trying to work on this mask a little bit. Um, so we decided to go to a restaurant in this kind of fancier neighborhood. So we're sitting at the bar because it was kind of the open area for dinner. And Josh is, you know, big, bright city lights looking around. Uh, and I noticed as we're talking, he looks across the bar and he like, gets this look on his face. Then he turns to me and he goes, Mike, I think that guy over there is Magic Johnson. And oh, sweet little Josh. I just look at him. It's like, Oh, it's the big city. Not everybody uh, hangs out with celebrities here in the big city. You don't just bump into them. It's like, no, 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 Josh. And I look over, and probably for me to fill up right here was Magic Johnson, just sitting right there um, at the bar waiting for his food. So it's like, whoa, this is like the biggest celebrity I've ever seen in my life. So at that point, you got, you got a decision to make, right? Because as a fan, as taking advantage of this like once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, you might want to get his autograph. But at the same time, man is here to eat, right? You don't interrupt a man's meal, right? You, you just want to be... So he hadn't got his food yet. So I decided my best friend growing up, his name was David, was a huge Lakers fan. I said, for David, I'm going to go over there and do it before he gets his meal. So I grab a coaster, I walk over there. I was so nervous. I walked up to... I'm like stumbling through. I'm like, uh, Mr. Magic. Uh, can I and uh, I think I'm 90% sure I said this. Uh, hey, Mr. Johnson, I'm so sorry to bother you. I was wondering if I could get an autograph uh, for my friend, uh, David. You're his biggest fan. <laughs> so it turns out that my friend David Russell from uh, Garland, Texas, if you ever wondered who on the planet was David's biggest fan, it actually is Magic Johnson. Who would have thought? Uh, so I was so nervous. 
So he signs this coaster, and I'm trying to be polite, not bother him, so I walk away. But here was the coolest moment of the interaction. So I'm like, thank you, and I, and I try to sneak away. And literally, I had already turned around and was walking away, and I hear him say, hey. And I turn around, and he stuck his fist out for a fist bump. So he gave me a fist bump, and we walked away. Uh, so cool, awesome. So we went back, and I was like, I mean, Josh was like, I'm the one that found him. How come you got to go hang out with him? I was like, well, you know, here in the big city, we, you know, take advantage. And so, um, but all that to say, it was a cool experience. It makes for a fun story today. But the reality is, I went back around the corner of the bar. Josh and I sat down, ate our dinner, moved on the rest of our lives. And as cool as it was to meet Magic Johnson, nothing really changed. I mean, it didn't even change my meal, let alone my night, let alone my life. Today we're going to see what happens when Jesus interacts with us. And not only does it change the moment, it changes everything always forever. In this story in Luke chapter 5, we're going to see Jesus give a master class in how to change a life. In fact, that could have been the title of the sermon, may have been better, How to Change a Life. And we're going to see the strokes of this master genius and this interaction he has with Peter and the steps he takes to come after and grab a hold of Peter's heart, Peter's life, and change him. And in doing so, I think we'll see a lot of similarities on what he does for us as well. So again, let's turn to Luke chapter 5. Uh, we'll read verses 1 through 11 of the story. To put it in a little bit of context, obviously it's on the early stages of the gospel of Luke. So everyone's still figuring out this Jesus guy, right? I mean, to be honest, we're still kind of figuring him out today. Um, But Jesus is on the scene. He started calling his disciples. He's definitely been teaching about God and the kingdom. He's even been doing some miracles. Like right before this, he heals Peter's mother-in-law. He does some other healings, some other spiritual, um, uh, like demon possession release and stuff like that. Um, and, And here we have an interaction with Peter Uh, who's called Simon in this story. And you can see this mysterious Jesus guy does something so incredibly profound that will change Simon or Peter's life forever. So walk with me as we read the story, and we're going to kind of unpack step by step this master class of Jesus on how do you change someone's life. So let's start in chapter 5, verse 1. It says this, On one occasion... While the crowd was pressing in on him, Jesus, to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, or Peter's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will lay down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon and Jesus. Uh, And Jesus said to Simon, 
do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. So let's look together in this story, the steps that Jesus takes to change a life. The first step is what I call the title of the sermon, a holy disruption. So look back at me at verse 3, 3 through 5. Let's read those again. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let your nets down for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. So to set the scene here, Peter and the other fishermen had already put in a full day's work. They'd already, they, they're the experts. They know what they're doing. They know how this thing works. They put out their, uh, their nets all day long and they got nothing. Meanwhile, Jesus had been teaching and being, uh, sharing with the crowds of the reality of the kingdom of God. And here, Jesus does something, the first step that's remarkable. And it's a step I call a holy disruption. And what do I mean by holy disruption? Well, I mean it like this. Jesus is looking at this man, Peter. And he's saying, as we know, I'm coming after this man. I'm not coming after part of this man. I'm not coming after a sliver of his life or to be an addition to his life. I'm coming after the entirety of this man. I want all of Peter's life focused on all of who I am. And what means does he take to get all of Peter? Well, if he wants to get all of Peter, he has to go to the very center of Peter's life. The most important thing about Peter, maybe the thing Peter puts his identity in or his security in or a plan, maybe the thing that Peter thinks of all the things in the world that I don't know, I know this. I'm an expert here. I understand this. No one can teach me anything about this. It's fishing. Jesus doesn't look at Peter and say, I'm going to go after him, so I'm going to bring him to a Bible study. He doesn't look at Peter and say, hey, I'm going to come after his life, so you know what? We're going to make a meal together, or we're going to put together a five-year plan together. Like, like, let's come up and let's brainstorm. No, he looks at Peter and says, if I want that man, I've got to get the thing that's at the center of his heart. I've got to disrupt the thing in his life that he thinks is actually the most secure. And show him how wrong he is. So, so Jesus, in coming after Peter, starts the process with this holy disruption coming after the very life and livelihood of Peter being a fisherman. Those are the battlegrounds. That's the field that this play is going to be run on. Is the very center of who Peter is. And you can even see in Peter's response... An understanding of that. What does Peter say? Master, we have toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will lay down the nets. Let's give Peter credit. He submitted. He obeyed. But you see in his response, he's kind of saying, Hey, Jesus, I know what I'm doing. I'm the expert here. Hey, Jesus, you're a great teacher. Like, teach us. Hey, you're even a great miracle worker, healer. Like, heal us. I've heard skills that maybe you're even a carpenter or something like, yeah, like that. You could be a carpenter. Fishing is my world. I know that. I'm an expert here. But you know what? I'll kind of humor you a little bit, and we'll go and do it. Even G Peter was kind of saying, like, hey, Jesus, 
kind of stay in your lane. And Jesus is kind of saying, hey, Peter, I own the highway. Like, but Peter doesn't realize that yet. But, but Peter had this temptation to view Jesus in a certain way that says, oh yeah, I can, I can compartmentalize you into certain places in my life. Jesus, when I need someone to teach me about the Torah, I'll go to you. Jesus, when my mother-in-law is sick, I'll go to you. Jesus, when I need X, Y, and Z, I'll go to you. But this world over here, this is my world. Fishing is my world. This is where I run the show. This is where I'm the expert. This is where I call the shots. So Jesus knew that's exactly where he needed to meet Peter. Friends, I do the same thing with Jesus. I put guardrails and fences and try and hem Jesus into certain aspects of my life saying, Jesus, you can, you can walk around over here. You can take a couple hours on Sunday morning, no problem. You can take one night a week, no problem. But you know what? The other five days are mine. Or Jesus, you know what? Like, yeah, you can have this part of my paycheck that I'll give to your mission, but this part of my paycheck, that's mine. Or you know what, Jesus, I'll give you a little bit of my calendar. I'll plan this out. Um, but you know what? The rest of my five-year, 10-year, 20-year retirement plan, that's mine. And you know what? I can try like a little bit like Peter and maybe say, yeah, Jesus, you're expert over here, but I'm, this is my expertise, my life over here. And just like Jesus to Peter is just like Jesus to us, that Jesus doesn't come after part of us. Jesus as Lord doesn't demand lordship over part of our lives. Jesus is saying, I'm Lord over everything. And the way that he gets our attention, the way that he changes our lives, is he comes after the thing that's most at the center of our lives. And that's different from all of us. For Peter, it was fishing. For some of us, it may be your career. For some of you, it may be a relationship or a desire to be in a relationship. Some, some of you, maybe it's accolades or academics or whatever it is. Maybe some of you, it's, it's just the freedom to live life how you want. Whatever it is, the center of your life is where you and I can expect a holy disruption by Jesus to occur. Because it happened to Peter here. So, Jesus comes in. And he's saying, Peter, I'm not going to stay in my lane. I'm not going to be him to the side or just ask for part of your life. I'm coming after everything. So you know what? It's not the right time according to your schedule. It's not the right plan according to your expertise. It's not wise according to your fisherman you know, sensibilities. But load up. Let's go. Let's go fish. He disrupts Peter's expertise, Peter's plan, the center of who Peter is. And when he does that, watch what Jesus does next in verses 6 and 7. Let's pick the story up again there. And when they, the fishermen, had done this, cast out their nets, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to the partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. This is remarkable. It is the wrong time to fish. It is fishing in a depleted area already. The experts are telling you it's nowhere, uh, no one would be fishing here. It's, the, it's completely the wrong circumstances. And yet they have literally a record setting day at the office. It is overflowing in fish. So much so that they need help. I mean, it's, it's unfathomable what happens here. But in this circumstance here, it's not about simply an overabundance of fish. It's not about this miracle of, uh, um, uh, of uh, provision on God's miraculous hand. What was Jesus doing in this moment through the provision of all these fish? 
He was making a reordering experience in the life of Peter. This is what I mean. Again, imagine you're Peter, you're fisherman, your livelihood, your identity, your expertise is based in the world of the sea and the, and the fish. It's not just how you provide for yourself. It's arguably how you provide for your family. We know Peter had a family, he had a mother-in-law. Being a good fisherman among other fishermen is probably how you had kind of identity and purpose and, and status. You probably wanted to be the best fisherman out of all the other fishermen there, not only to provide for your family, but also to provide maybe for your own ego and identity. And so you probably would look out at that sea and who you were as a person and who your lifehood was was based on how many fish were in that net at the end of the day. That was defining who you were, and that was surely defining how you lived. You might be tempted, if you're Peter, to think the fish in that sea control your life. Your life is determined and controlled by the number of fish that you have in your nets. Those fish control you. And what Jesus was doing here in this moment wasn't simply about providing all this amazing fish. What Jesus was saying was this. The things that you think control you, I control them. The things that you think make your life happen, hold you secure, make your plans happen, the things that you think are controlling and running your life, I'm controlling and running those things. Peter, look at all those fish. Don't trust the fish. Trust the one who put the fish in your nets. This was a reordering experience because here's what Peter had, a problem in his heart that we all have, and it's disordered heart trusts. What I mean by that is to say, the things that deep inside with us, in our hearts, in the center of who we are, we say, these are the things that I trust to, to define me, to provide for me, to make my dreams happen, to make my life secure and happy. Maybe it is like Peter, your business. Maybe it is your children and them behaving a certain way. Maybe it is, you know, a, a stock market hitting a, a certain number. Maybe it's getting enough degrees or whatever it is. Maybe it's being in a relationship or getting out of a relationship, whatever it is. We have certain things in our hearts and a ranking system that says, man, this is the thing at the top of my list. If I could only have this, if this could be in place, I would be happy. I would be safe. I would be secure. You can imagine for a fisherman, that thing would be his catch. If I can just catch enough fish, then everything will be fine. And Jesus is saying, your heart are, is trusting in the wrong thing. Don't trust in your catch. Trust in the Lord of the catch. Don't trust in yourself. Trust in the sovereign king over all things. Don't trust in your circumstance unfolding the way that you want it to. Unfold, uh, trust in the sovereign God over all circumstances, who will work good in your life for those that love you. Do you see what I'm saying here? This master class of what Jesus was doing here, he used the fish and the abundance of fish not to bless Peter financially, but to break him idolatrously. And we see that in what's next. He goes from this you know, experience where it's literally 
a record-setting day for him. Financially, this is the biggest windfall in a, in a day that he's ever had. So what, what response do you think might happen in that moment? If, if Peter sees all this fish and he's getting help and it's so much that like, I mean, it's over, you might think he might turn to Jesus and like go give him a bear hug and be like, hey, drinks are on me. Or, you know, I guess water's on me. You can, you can turn it into wine. Um, or you know what? He might say, hey, Jesus, same time tomorrow? Like, like this is great. We just unlocked a key to like, multiplying and, and you know scaling our business no what is peter's response in this moment to seeing what just happened in front of him it is not what we expect look again in verse 8 but when simon peter saw it this this massive miracle of fish he fell down at jesus's knees saying depart from me for i am a sinful man o lord if you didn't know this story, is that the response you would have expected? Not me. So when you read scripture, if you're like me, you see, you're like, why? Why would, why would Peter respond this way? Why would Simon respond this way? And again, Jesus in this master craft of this whole process to capture Peter's heart, he disrupts him by coming after the thing in his, his center of his life, fishing. In doing so, he exposes uh, the, the, the trust that Peter had been putting in his heart of saying, man, you've been trusting the fish. I'm over the fish. But in this moment, we see Peter give what I call a broken response. Why? Here's why I think. I think in that moment, in, in, on that boat with all these fish flopping and nets breaking and this crazy miracle happened. I think Peter got a glimpse of glory and it scared him. What do I mean by glimpse of glory? Well, if you are familiar with, with some of the, the texts like the Old Testament and even some of the New Testament like Revelation, there's always these scenes where God brings like prophets before him, like Isaiah or Ezekiel, or again, like in Revelation, the Apostle John, before his great throne. And, and they kind of see God in all his glory. The majesty and magnitude of the great I Am, the eternal, glorious, holy, perfect, almighty God of the universe. And when they come before him, what happens, if you remember? They always fall down dead, or, or like a dead man. In the presence of the glory of the Almighty God, not only is the glory of God so awesome and overwhelming, it exposes the sinful darkness, broken, selfish guilt of the sinfulness of man. And in that moment, in that discrepancy, we can't stand. I think in this boat, a like keyhole of a shadow of a sliver, of a beam of light of that glory was shining from Jesus onto Peter. And he realized he wasn't standing just in front of a great teacher. He wasn't standing just in front of some kind of miracle worker or even a carpenter or even, you know, a fishing expert. Because the reordering of his heart, he realized he was standing in front of someone who was in control of all things in perfect holiness, in perfect goodness. He knew in some degree, I believe, 
that he was standing before the divine Messiah. And not only was Peter starting to get a glimpse of the glory of Jesus, it was exposing his unworthy sinfulness before him. I think that's why Peter drops to his knees, because he realizes in this moment, I have more in common with these fish than I do with the Savior. So I'm going to drop down here where I belong. And he says, depart from me. So I'm reading the story and I'm reflecting on it. And I'm wondering about my own life. Like, honestly, guys, like, have we domesticated Jesus a little bit? Like, we've got, we've got shirts. I don't know if they're popular anymore. But it's like, Jesus is my homeboy. Or like, we have like, and I don't mean to be a little like, Instagram posts or those kind of things where we flash images of Jesus and we kind of make him on a coffee cup and we kind of do these things where Jesus is kind of like manageable, you know? And here Peter is, when he sees a sliver of the glimpse of the reality of Jesus, it scares the literal hell out of him. Because he understands to a smaller degree the greatness and holiness and magnitude of the one who is standing next to him. When's the last time the greatness and grandeur of Jesus brought us to our knees on our face before him? So this this broken response of Peter, again, is all part of this plan of Jesus and how he's orchestrating the circumstance because he's coming after Peter. He's coming after, and not just part of him, all of him. And he knows he's got to disrupt them at the, at the center so that he can reorder Peter's heart trusts and, and he can be exposed to see the ways that he was trusting in things other than God. And in doing so, it exposes here this broken response of, man, I'm a sinner in the presence of holiness and I've got no hope. And you know what? He could have said to Jesus in that moment, depart from me for I'm a sinful man. And you know what Jesus could have said and been holy and been good and righteous, Jesus could have said, you're right, so I'm going to go. You know, you aren't worthy of me. You aren't worthy of this moment. You aren't worthy of forgiveness. You aren't worthy of another chance. You aren't worthy of anything more than your little selfish life right now. Jesus could have said that, and would he have ceased to be perfect and good and God? No. He could have said all that. But that's not how Jesus responds. Coming off Peter's broken response, pick up the story again with me in verse 10. Actually, we'll start in verse 9. For he, Peter, and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And also, so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Jesus, the master class teacher, was leading Peter up to this moment. This moment. When Peter was in the full awareness of his sin and his unworthiness, and was getting a glimpse of the greatness of Jesus, when he knew that he should have been cast aside and was unworthy, Jesus was leading up to this moment so Jesus could look at him and say, do not 
be afraid. Jesus was offering in that moment an unexpected and unimaginable and life-changing grace. Why was Peter afraid? He said it. He said why he was afraid. I am a sinner. I am guilty. I am selfish. I am dark. I am hateful. I am self-centered. The orders of my heart are all out of whack. I am not worthy. He knew why he needed to be afraid and it was a sin. So when Jesus comes in and says, do not be afraid, just like he had given a glimpse of his glory, I think that brought Peter to his knees, he's now, Jesus is giving a glimpse of the gospel. When he says, do not be afraid to Peter, he's foreshadowing the main reason why Peter shouldn't be afraid. Peter is afraid because of his sinfulness, his condemnation, his guilt. So Jesus can only say, do not be afraid, if he's going to do something about that sin. When Peter sits there, Jesus is saying, your sin is not the end of you, because I am the end of your sin. Do not be afraid, sinner. Your sin is not the end of you, because I am the end of your sin. Peter didn't know it there in the boat, but Jesus absolutely knew. The reason he came to this earth was not to like disrupt the fishing markets. It wasn't even just to do miracles of healing or even simply to teach. All those were part of it. Absolutely purposes. But the very purpose of his life was so that Peter wouldn't have to be afraid in his sin anymore because he was going to go take care of sin for us. The very sin that Peter was afraid of in his own heart, the guilt and shame and condemnation that he knew was there, Jesus was going to take that guilt and shame and condemnation for him on the cross. The eternal weight of our rebelling and running and disordering of our hearts and idolatry that deserve God's eternal condemnation, Jesus was going to take that eternal condemnation for Peter, for us on the cross. So Peter can look at, or sorry, Jesus can look at Peter in that moment and say, don't be afraid. You're right. You're not worthy in this moment. But you know what, Peter? I didn't do all this right now because you're worthy. I did all this right now because you're wanted. I want you. I want your heart. I want your life. I want everything about you. And so I told you to go fishing at a weird time. And I brought all these fish to show you who's in control. And I exposed to you your sin that scared you so I could lead you up right now and say, it's not about you, it's about me. It's not about you being worthy, it's about you being wanted. It's not about you being afraid and defined by your sin anymore and the life that you lived apart from me. I'm calling you to a new life, forgiven and freed by my grace and called to a new purpose in my grace. This master class of how to change a life in Luke chapter 5. The culmination is being exposed to a life-changing grace. I love a commentator who made this point. He said, you know what? Up to this point, Peter had heard Jesus' teaching, but he didn't leave everything and follow him then. He had seen Jesus' healing, but he didn't leave everything and follow him then. It wasn't until Peter heard the words of grace that changed everything for him and caused him to leave everything and follow Jesus. Why is grace such a transformative power? Well, I'm reminded um, 
of, uh, there's a preacher named, named Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was very evangelistic in his teaching. And, and oftentimes when he would preach, he would talk about uh, how our understanding of grace directly relates to the transformation in our life. And he would use this, I, I'm going to update his analogy just a little bit more. But he says this, he said, imagine you out there were invited over to my house. Okay, so you show up at my house. You know what, I'm not there yet. For some reason, I'm running behind. And so I come by a little later, you're at my house. And when I get there, you tell me, hey, Mike, uh, somebody came by. They were looking for you. Uh, you owed them money. And I went ahead and paid uh, what you owed them for you. What would my response be? Well, I, I, I might say, um, well, it depends on how much you paid. <laughs> like, what, what did you pay for me? And they said, well, it was, uh, it was a Girl Scout. And you didn't pay for one of your boxes. So uh, it was five bucks. So I paid for it. And so don't worry about it. I might say, man, that's great. Thank you. Here's a handshake and have a cookie. You know, like, let's, let's celebrate. <laughs> It'd be great. I'd be very happy. Well, what if I said, well, who was it that came by? And it wasn't a Girl Scout, but you told me, hey, it was the IRS. And they came and told me your years and years of back taxes, unpaid taxes, and fines and fines and fines. They told me it was hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. And Mike, I went ahead and paid it for you. How might I respond to you then? Uh, you'll probably have to pick my sobbing body up off your feet with my arms wrapped around you because I'm going to be saying, you changed everything for me. You changed my life. No moment of any day of my life going forward won't be impacted by what you just did for me. The amount of debt that you paid, the amount of grace that you just showed me, absolutely transforms everything about me. And Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones would put that in there and say, friends, what Jesus Christ has done for us, for Peter, for everybody, is infinitely more than any of those IRS payments could have ever been. The weight of our sin, the debt that we incurred because we've been running and rebelling and turning from God, we literally have an eternal condemnation uh, debt upon us. That in the mystery of the gospel, Jesus on that cross took the eternal weight of God's just wrath against my sin on himself. And if I believe that, do I walk up to Jesus and give him a handshake? Or do I grovel at his feet, saying, you've changed everything. Everything is different. Every moment of every day from this moment is different. How do you change a life? You get them to see their need for and the sufficiency of the grace of Jesus Christ. And when we see that, it changes everything. Another way of thinking about it is this. The amount that grace changes us is equal to the amount of grace that we think we need. If we don't think we need much grace, I'm pretty good. Yeah, I know I do some stuff wrong. Our transformation will be small. But if we understand the depths of our debt of sin before God and Jesus' love and willingness to take it on our behalf, that will change everything about us always and forever. I love this quote. and I don't remember who said it. But it goes like this. Grace is not a reward for the righteous, but a gift for the guilty. And on a face full of fish, 
in this mystery of seeing the glimpse of the glory of God and a mystery of understanding a little bit of the gospel, Peter was receiving a gift for the guilty in that moment when Jesus says, don't be afraid. I'm not done with you. I'm not doing this because you're worthy. I'm doing this because you're wanted. And this grace changed him and it changes us. So years ago, I had a chance encounter with a celebrity at a Dallas restaurant. And it changed nothing. But years before that, an interaction with the same one that Jesus or the Peter had an interaction with here, Jesus. And it changed everything. And maybe your story is similar to Peter's, maybe similar to mine, where Jesus loves us so much, loves us so much, that he doesn't want to come after just part of us, but all of us. And if we follow the model of Peter, he's going to look at what's at the center of our lives that's not trusting in him, and then come at it with a holy disruption. And when he comes into that, to comes at the very thing that might be sitting at the heart of who we are, we can expect a reordering experience. He might remove some things we've been trusting in. He might provide for us in miraculous ways that we could never have done ourselves. Whatever it is, he's going to expose a reordering in our hearts to see where our trusts have been misplaced. And in doing so, it should bring us to a broken conviction where we realize how little we trust God, how undeserving we are for his love in our lives. And it should break us down only so that he can rebuild us by his grace with a life-changing message of his love for us in the cross that gives us a new life and calls us, calls us, church family, calls us to a new purpose. Peter wasn't a fisherman anymore after that moment. He was a disciple maker who fished. You and I aren't what we were before. We are a disciple maker, a follower of Jesus who does X, Y, Z. The same grace that forgives is the same grace that calls. So I want to conclude with a few questions and the same questions for myself as uh, we're going to have communion here in, in just a second. I want to ask you these questions and I'm asking myself as we look at this story about Jesus changing life. First question, do you and I expect Jesus to disrupt our lives? Is Jesus manageable for you? Is Jesus relegated to those fenced-in areas of your life where you can keep him contained and controlled and you can kind of run the show on everything else? Or do you expect the radical, sovereign love of God to come into our lives and out of love give us a holy disruption and shake things up to reorder our lives and hearts to the reality of who he is? Do you expect Jesus to do that? Because, you know, yes, do that. Expect that. If God loves you, he's not going to leave you where you are. Or me. Second question. When is the last time you and I were overwhelmed by Jesus? Maybe it's like Peter in the boat where we're overwhelmed at his majesty, his holiness, his greatness. The king of kings, the second person of the trinity, the ancient of days. The Lord of Lords, the name by which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. The risen King. When's the last time the magnitude and greatness and glory of Jesus overwhelmed us and dropped us down to the ground in a puddle? Or maybe it's not simply the greatness of Jesus, but when have we been overwhelmed by the grace 
of Jesus. When we sit and we think about the magnitude of our unworthiness, how sinful we truly are and undeserving, and yet that didn't stop His love from coming after us and rescuing us. That didn't stop Him from doing everything that it took to come and redeem and change us. That we are not left like Peter saying, depart from me. But we are like Peter when Jesus says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Your sin is not the end of you because I'm the end of your sin. And lastly, will we answer the call? When Jesus looks at Peter and the disciples, says, don't be afraid. From now on, your life is different. Now on, your purpose is different. From now on, the reason you get up in the morning is different. From now on, the reason you're married is different. The reason you raise kids is different. The reason you go to work is different. The reason you open a bank account is different. The reason you get an education is different. The reason you do anything and everything in your life is now different. Because from now on, grace not only has forgiven you, grace has given you now a new purpose. That's to join me in the mission of proclaiming the gospel hope of Jesus to the world. Will we answer that call? Will we leave everything to follow Jesus or will we go back to the boats and fish again tomorrow like any other day? We're about to take communion now and invite those that are uh, distributing the elements, those in the band that are going to be playing. Communion is an awesome opportunity to remember that life-changing grace. To remember the cost it took so that we wouldn't have to be afraid of our sin. And that cost was Jesus' very life and very death. But communion is also a chance to remember the great love of God that he was willing to do it. That you and I are not worthy, but we are wanted. And that's shown in what Jesus did through his life, death, and resurrection. How Jesus changes a life. Let me pray as we transition to communion. Lord Jesus, I pray in here right now, if there's nobody in here that's truly come to understand that grace, that this would be the moment. That they would understand that their condemnation and their guilt and their sin is not where they have to stay, but they can be forgiven and redeemed and made new by trusting Jesus, that you died in their place on the cross and you rose again. I pray for those of us in the family that have been made new by that grace, that it would continue to change us and move us and call us to greater trust in you and live with greater purpose and using these small little vapors of lives to magnify the eternal kingdom and glory of Jesus. Spirit, we ask that you would do this. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.